The following message is entitled, Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed, Part 6. This message was given during the morning service on November 13, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. I'll repeat what I've just said to the congregation for the sake of those listening remotely. Middle Sunday of the month, I choose to do three different sermon series each month on Sunday mornings so that my lack of speed going through texts doesn't bog us down only on Sunday mornings in one text for months. So I do on the first Sunday of the month, Communion Sunday, we're going verse by verse, phrase by phrase through the Gospel of John. Middle Sundays of the month, First Timothy, and we're in chapter 1, verse 2 again today. Last Sunday of the month is our verse-by-verse series from Titus chapter 2 on the marks of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, and here is the triad power source from God. Grace, number one, mercy, number two, and peace, number three, only from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't get grace, mercy, and peace anywhere else in this universe except from the Lord. In your note sheet, and for those that are listening, we're looking at the first priority of a, the kind of local church God wants. First, Second Timothy and Titus are the three epistles that teach us three of the New Testament epistles focusing on what a local church is to do, how a congregation that meets locally of true born-again Christians is to be. Covers every essential issue of a local church spiritually that is necessary. And as I've said many times, isn't it ironic? Three books out of all the New Testament books are written on how a church is to function. That means it's quite important, doesn't it? How many books were written on the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? No. How many were written specifically on the life of Jesus Christ? Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And right behind that is three on a local church. So I think this is extremely important teaching that churches are tending to overwhelmingly ignore. And as you know, and I've taught you, isn't it ironic that in three books on the New Testament on how local churches to operate, not one word, not one word on music. And what's the number one criteria for American churches? Two things, actually, I've found by experience. Music, number one, and youth ministry, number two. Neither are mentioned in these three books. What does that tell us? If those were mandates for the church today, would they not be in these three books? You can't convince anybody on this, by the way. I've attempted for 35 years. I taught this all the way back as a youth leader from 1 Timothy when I was a youth. Sue and I were youth leaders at Westchester Bible Church in our 20s. I had had more young people. We had more young people sitting in front of us than our entire size of our congregation at Westchester Bible Church. They were running 300 Uh, members at that point. I think they're down into the 60s and 70s now, last I heard, which is tragic. But it's the state of the church today, and I taught this way back then, to no avail. I have never had a single, that I'm aware of now, so I don't want to offend anyone here, I've never had a single young person, Christian young person in 35 years, adding three years of youth ministry, 38 years, who has ever submitted to the fact that music is not vital to your Christian walk. Okay? Never had one person that submitted to that that I'm aware of. And so many times, the reason many young people especially, and adults, have left our church is they didn't like the music. They created a fundamental that doesn't exist in the Bible. 
Music also is not a foundation to grow. It is a result of growth. Music is only mentioned in the church twice, in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, and that is not a prerequisite to growth, but it is if you are growing, this is what your music will do. And that's personal music, not corporate, because it's in regards to a Christian being spirit-filled. It has nothing to do with corporate music. Corporate Congregational local church music is mentioned nowhere in the New Testament. Well, it's mentioned in 150 psalms. Not the music form, just the content of the verses. If God wanted us to have the tune, he would have built it into the psalms, wouldn't he? Can't God do anything? No. But remember... Something that is a mandate in the Old Testament for us to obey it today has to be a mandate in the New Testament. Music was a mandate in the Old Testament, but it's not mentioned again corporately for local churches. Isn't that amazing? We don't like that, do we? It makes me feel so good. That's good. But you can feel good and be totally disobedient. You better be careful about applying something in the Old Testament that is never mentioned in the New because there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are mentioned for the Israelites that are not mandates for today. How about sacrificing animals? How about circumcision? Hmm? How about separating from all the nations when we're told to go out into all the nations? The exact opposite in the New Testament. So, my take on this is whether anyone listens to this or not, if these are the mandates for a church for all times, and I'll just teach it. Whether you choose to obey it or not, is you'll have to stand before the Lord. And the first series, in verses 1 to 20, the first chapter of 1 Timothy, deals with another thing that the church can't be bothered with. As the church continues to dump teaching and increase music, they're doing the exact opposite of what this apostle is telling a church to do. Music is not a mandate, but teaching is. The first 20 verses of this chapter, the first priority in your note sheet, is God wants teachers who are true and doctrine that is pure. So what does the American Evangelical Church do? Decrease the amount of teaching time and increase music. That's defiance. The biggest way that our kids, when they were small, got into major trouble and would receive chastisement is not only if they disobeyed, but they did the exact opposite. I told you that one time when Lauren was very little and we didn't want her going into the kitchen. She's kind of a passive rubble. So she had her back to me in the living room and I said, don't you go into that kitchen. I don't know why I said that to her, but there was a reason. Sue was doing something and maybe dealing with knives or something. I don't know. So I said, don't go into the kitchen. She stuck her little toe across the threshold. <laughs> Just that little toe. Passive rebellion. So I see that toe. So that's defiance, doing the exact opposite. It's one thing to not obey a command, but to do the exact opposite is major defiance, isn't it? Yeah. But when you have an idea that's strongholded in your mind, I'm going to give you a little clue on this. If your mind is strongholded with unbiblical ideas, no one and nothing is ever going to get it out of your mind. That's 2 Corinthians 10. Once you are captured with a belief that is not scriptural, and you refuse to analyze it to see if it is, no one, pastor, teachers, nothing is ever going to change your mind. And the way you negate this first 10 minutes of the sermon is simply say this. A stronghold of believer will say this. I don't agree 
with that. It's totally irrelevant whether you agree with me or not. Totally irrelevant. It's what does the Bible say. I'm not giving my opinions up here. I'm not. So you can disagree with this all you want, what I've just said in the first 10 minutes. But that's irrelevant to God. He doesn't care what you agree with and I agree with or not. It's whether you submit to what's true. That's the issue. Now in verses 1 and 2 under priority number 1, the church was founded by Christ and the apostles. And we're in letter C looking at these, this marvelous trilogy of power. If you want to grow as a Christian, and this is written to churches, written to believers, you need to tap into these three grace empowerment, these three Holy Spirit empowerments, grace, mercy, and peace. We finish grace. The way you tap into grace is you resist the two things that kill grace, and that's legalism and licentiousness. Those are the two arms in the New Testament that destroy walking by grace. And now today we continue our study of mercy. Grace, you live by faith, not by legalism or licentiousness. And mercy, we're seeing principles or lessons on it. Next to the hourglass, you can see I've been teaching you for the last few months, just in the middle Sundays, lessons from the hourglass of God's mercy. Why an hourglass? Well, these first eight principles that we've already covered deal with the concept of the hourglass. Lesson number one that we've seen is the hourglass of mercy in Saul. There is no mercy for an apostate. Do you believe, you might ask me, John, if Saul is a believer? He was not a believer, in my opinion. There is no mercy for an apostate. Lesson number two that we saw is the hourglass of mercy in Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat reached a point in his kingship when he was in rebellion against God. His rebellion looked exactly like Saul's apostasy. A rebel true believer and apostate look exactly the same. You cannot tell them apart by their behavior. The only way to tell an apostate who will go to hell, faking being a believer, and a rebel believer who's backslidden and will go to heaven eventually, the only way to tell the difference is not how they look. Saul and Jehoshaphat looked exactly the same. The way you tell the difference is with the rebel believer, God intervenes with life-threatening chastisement. As it says under lesson number two, there's no mercy for rebellious believers without repentance. If a rebellious believer does not repent of their rebellion, then God pulls mercy back and takes their life. Lesson number three, what do I mean by the hourglass of mercy? It just means there's a time limit to God's mercy, and he doesn't tell us when that limit has been achieved. Thus, the sand running through the hourglass. At some point, the top glass empties and God's mercy towards a rebellious believer comes to an end. And that's scary because we don't know when that is. Lesson number four, we can only tell when mercy is run out by observing the evidences in a believer's life of rebellion. And we looked at the major evidences that show whether a Christian is in rebellion or not. I'm not going to recut that lawn. Lesson number five. We focus then in on mercy itself in verse 2. It's Elias. It means just generically pity and compassion from God upon those who deserve to be judged or chastised. So it is holding back judgment is what it is. Holding back chastisement. Offering of mercy. Grace is the giving of unmerited favor and mercy is the withholding of judgment. Lesson number 6 that we looked at. The offer of mercy to mankind is unconditional. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's unconditional, the offer of salvation. Lesson number seven, the reception of mercy by an unbeliever or a believer is conditional. For the unbeliever, they must ask Christ to be Lord and Savior as they repent. That's the conditions. And for a believer to receive mercy, as we saw, they have to walk in obedience to the word. Lesson number eight, 
Mercy is sympathy for our sin plight, but as mercy is not the divine excusing of one's sins, this is another notoriously strongholded and rebellious position of the church today among probably 99% of all believers. They think mercy means don't confront sin. God's mercy towards me means he's not upset over my sin. I don't have to repent of it. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is holy. His mercy does not mean that he excuses sin. And we looked at that issue extensively. I won't recut that lawn either. Lesson number nine is new material for today. Let's fill in the blanks. We only have two principles left. And this is the vital one of all the ten principles. Number nine is how do I tap mercy so that I can grow? We know we tap grace by walking by faith. How do I specifically apply the power of mercy to grow in sanctification? Let's figure that out this morning. Lesson number nine, how does mercy sanctify the believer? Number one, three ways. Number one, mercy sanctifies the believer first when the believer is trusting. So faith comes in with mercy as well as grace. Trusting. God's power to transform. Trusting God's power to transform him. Now here's where it gets different from grace. Based on the fact that God showed mercy to the believer when he was a hell-bound enemy of Christ. Mercy sanctifies the believer first when the believer is trusting God and his power to transform him based on the fact that God showed mercy to the believer when he was a hell-bound enemy of Christ. Now let's make this specific. On the blank lines. This first one means this. When you live by mercy, you defeat licentiousness as you grow in faith. That's what you need to write down on the blank lines. Under this first principle of how to tap mercy power. When you live by mercy, you're defeating licentiousness as one grows in faith. In this first way to tap mercy power, you live by mercy by, and it defeats licentiousness as you grow in faith. The basic idea of this is very simple. I can't believe that you saved me. I can't believe that you spared me from hell. If you did that when I was lost, why would you abandon me now? That's number one. I'm amazed that I'm not going to hell. Now, every Christian will line up and say, Amen! Amen! Spared me from hell. Nah. Nah. Here's the tell. Remember I said last Sunday night, if you were here or listened on the recording, the tell whether you're trusting God and your suffering is your prayer life. Here's the tell on this first one. Are you ready? As a growing believer, you think about hell and you're terrified by it. Write that down. This is the tell. You think about hell and you're terrified by it. I have found that as I've grown in the Lord, I become more terrified of hell. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait. I thought we were trusting God to be spared from hell. Oh, I'm not terrified that I'm going there. I'm just terrified that I'm not going there. 
I'm just amazed. This is the tell. I find people don't talk, Christians don't talk about hell. Uh, I don't want to, I'm not going there, so I don't need to talk. No, you do need to talk about it. The more you realize what you've been spared, the more grateful you are to trust him in faith. You're bored about hell. I mean, shrug your shoulders, you know. I asked Jesus, I'm saved, I'm not going to hell. Did it ever frighten you? Does it frighten you now when you realize where the lost are going? Does it frighten you now when you think about you could very well have gone there? Hell is horrible. And I don't know how best to describe it other than all alone, always falling, bottomless pit, complete darkness, and sheer agonizing pain. Those four things. All alone, always falling, complete darkness, and agonizing pain. Forever. There's no repentance in hell. There's no regret in hell. Sue and I were talking about this. The reason why you can't repent in hell is the Holy Spirit's not there. You can't repent without the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 2. There's no conversions in hell. When their whole group of hell is brought up before the judgment seat of God at the end of the millennium, you have rapture, tribulation, second coming, millennium, and then the great white throne judgment when all the sea of unsaved humanity has been brought before the throne of God. The only time they're relieved of the pains and agonies of hell. Can you imagine in all darkness falling, totally alone, and burning with fire, and you're instantly relieved of that as you're brought before the golden white throne of heaven? Wouldn't you think that would create a tremendous repentance experience? Every last unbeliever in hell right now and who's going to be in there when brought before the throne of God will have no defense because in Revelation it says that he will take each unbeliever and say, defend that you're saved based by your transformation, not by your profession, transformation. It's right there in Revelation 20. Every unbeliever will be required to defend that they shouldn't be in hell based on their transformation. They were transformed. They never received Jesus Christ. They experienced and rejected no mercy. They experienced mercy and rejected it. There will be no regret. You won't see a single unbelieving hell person in heaven before the throne of God for the final judgment. You won't see any dropping to their knees, pouring out their heart, please, I want you now, I repent, I repent. No. Now is the time of salvation. There's no conversions going on in heaven. There won't be any regret. They'll be cursing God before the throne. They'll be telling him he made a mistake. How dare you throw me in there? Mm -mm. No mercy. That scares the living daylights out of me. Because that's what I deserve. I find there's two eternities that very few Christians ever talk about. One is heaven and one is hell. Have you as a believer growing had some sleepless nights? Have you been shocked over the fact of what hell is? And then when you're not living for the Lord, you lose assurance of salvation. That's guaranteed. You will lose assurance if you're a true believer. You'll start doubting your salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's called holy terror rolls into your heart and mind. So you're not living for the Lord based on biblical criteria. You start to become terrorized that you're going to hell when you're not. 
And all the aspects of hell flood into you and you say, I'm going to be falling forever. I'm going to be burning forever. I'm going to be all alone. No one to talk to in complete darkness. Never see anything for all of eternity. And that just wastes the rebellious believer. That's in Hebrews 10. All the people we've church disciplined. All the rebels who claim to be saved that have come through this church and have rebelled against the holy virtues of God and his word. I can't think of a single one ever expressing terror because they're in rebellion and God robbed their assurance. You know what we've experienced as elders? The same thing that the throne of God, the great white throne judgment will experience from unbelievers. Same thing that they will do when they know in the tribulation that God is causing all the horrible global and universal physical calamities in the tribulation. They will shake their fist at God and curse him in the tribulation. They will do it at the white throne judgment. And rebellious believers who've been brought under the church discipline in this church have almost to the man and woman cursed with rage what we did to them. No fear of God. No fear of hell. Now you look what you wrote down. Living by mercy defeats licentiousness. Because licentiousness, that's I'm free to sin. That's what licentiousness is. I'm free to sin. Praise Jesus, I can sin all I want. I'm going to heaven. That's what licentiousness is. And when you think about God's mercy and what you've been spared, and how when you start to backslide, you think you're not spared hell, and you become terrorized that maybe you're a false believer, it does a marvelous work on how we play with sin. Because the only way you can trust God that you're going to heaven is glory and his mercy sparing you from hell. And you hate it so much when you lose your assurance that you repent like crazy of your licentiousness and it motivates you to walk in purity. Christians play with sin. Doesn't seem to bother them at all. So that's number one. Now, where is this scripturally? Because I've said a lot. Let's start with Romans 12. Actually, let's go to Romans 2 and just go in order. Romans 2. Here is a major mark of a false believer coming up. So brace for impact. Someone who claims that they're saved going to heaven but is a false believer. Romans chapter 2. One of the scariest verses in all the Bible, in my opinion. Romans 2 verse 4. He's talking to basically two groups, Gentiles and then Jews. Jews think that they're saved, and so Paul confronts them in verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Kindness, by the way, is one of the many words for mercy and passion. Tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The mercy of God leads you to repentance. What is verse 4 saying? What is Paul saying? He's saying, how can you have long-term 
emotional calm and lack of repentance in the face of your wickedness. That's what he's saying. In other words, to recap verse 4, the unbeliever, the fake believer, the rebellious believer, the more God doesn't strike them down for their sin, the more they sin. I got away with it. That's verse 4. Thinking lightly. In the Greek, thinking lightly is one word. It actually doesn't appear in the Greek sentence. It comes after the word patience in the English sentence there. And the idea here is that you patiently love the kindness of Jesus so that you can sin more. That is major evil. Nobody who's repentant does this. Uh Uh-uh. So patience and kindness are partners. Thinking lightly of it. The idea is, it's no big deal that I'm saved. Again, how would you know that you really think it's no big deal that you're saved? No fear of hell. Let's say that salvation did this for you. Let's say that the major gift of salvation was this. Because you got converted, at that moment, a penny appeared on your dresser. What a gift of salvation. You got a penny on your dresser. And then all of the Christians would gather together at local churches like ours and glory in God's mercy in providing a penny on the dresser. No, nobody would do that. Penny's nothing. What's the big deal? That's exactly the attitude that I have found over the years in and out of our church concerning, oh my goodness, I've been spared hell. It's kind of like a penny. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. When was the last time you heard an evangelist preach on the horrors of hell? It's no big deal. It's a penny. There are times when you and I should lose sleep over the horrors of hell. And especially if you're not living for the Lord, you become terrorized that maybe you're not saved. You can't lose your salvation. You start to wonder if you ever had it to begin with. Hmm. Hell doesn't shake people up in the church. That's why they're so licentious. So you see how this works. If you take lightly... God's riches of mercy and patience, and you know that the kindness of God in verse 4 leads you to repentance, what does that make you? Verse 5 tells you what it is. If you take lightly his patience, his mercy, you take lightly the issue of hell. Yeah, yeah, I, I know about hell. Hell's forever. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah. What's for lunch today? Again, I, you, know, you know, that's all past history, John. I, you know, I was spared hell, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. Really? Well, this is the deal in verse 5. The person who takes lightly his mercy from hell, basically kindness and patience refers to mercy from hell. That professed believer is two things in verse 5. Stubborn 
That's that what I talked about earlier in regards to music. Strongholded, hardened, absolutely nothing's going to convince me of what's being said from this pulpit. And unrepentant in the heart, that's the mind. And what happens to such a person? Storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. What is wrath? It is holy judgment that sends a person to hell. That's not chastisement in verse 5. Wrath is never a word used for true believers. It's used for professed believers who are fakes, and it's used for unbelievers. Wrath is the unleashing of infinite power against a human being. You would think, oh, well, infinite power against a puny little human being would mean puff of smoke annihilated, right? No. Infinite power means he grabs the human, puts them in hell, and his infinite power keeps that person in hell infinitely. Forever. There is no time in hell. Billions of people right now as we stand here are screaming in agony in hell. Not one of them regrets rejecting Christ. The revelation of the righteous judgment. Verse 6, again, what I mentioned in Revelation 20 is mentioned in verse 6. Who rendered each person according to his deeds. I thought we were saved by faith. We are, but we're judged by works. Saved by faith, judged by works. It's all through the New Testament. It's right in verse 6. So if you were to make the eternally fatal decision, which I hear ad infinitum, how do you know you're saved? I have made a profession. That's not what I asked. A profession of salvation is how you get saved. How do you know that you're saved? Verse 6. By my deeds. You have to analyze your life to see if you show the deeds, the evidences, the works of true salvation. Is That's how he judges us in verse 6, right? The fatal flaw of all unbelievers, especially apostates, is they are convinced that they're saved based on profession. But professions can be false. Say, what, what deeds? Well, look at verse 7. True believers... By perseverance in doing good. Seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. So we persevere. Perseverance, James chapter 1, is one of the major evidences. See Christians quitting all the time. They quit their faith. They quit their Bible time. They quit their witnessing. They quit coming to church. This, this is endemic to the church. Perseverance is the opposite of that. It's endurance. And seeking to do good for the glory of God. See. This is the evidence that one has eternal life. And doing good is defined in the New Testament, not as church attendance, by the way. There's a host of things we've already looked at that are evidences of true salvation. But look at the fake in verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. Ignorance of the truth. You can't obey the Bible if you're ignorant of it. So the church is filled with Bible-ignorant individuals. Selfish, ambitious, obey unrighteousness. They are the ones that are going to hell in verse 8. Notice... Both groups, he's talking to professed Jewish believers. True believers, verse 7. False believers who claim to be believers, verse 8. Judaizers especially. Look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every mind, every soul of man who does evil. Does evil means continuously without any repentance. Repentance is the defining mark back in verse 4. Of the Jew first because they got the truth first and also of every Gentile. 
and glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Notice again, the way that a person is analyzed by the throne of God as to whether they're a true believer is the evidence of transformation. You're sitting here today is irrelevant to any evidence or assurance that you're a true believer. Verse 10, it says, who does good. And God doesn't play favorites in verse 11. God does not play favorites. This is amazing that he would spare me this wrath that I deserve so much. Hell frightens the daylights out of me. I didn't do anything to deserve this. How do I know that I'm not going there? See, if I'm afraid of it, I'm going to self-analyze. How do I know that I'm not a false convert? Apostates can't be bothered. They won't be bothered in hell. They aren't bothered in hell. They won't be bothered or convicted before the throne of God. So any apostate ever who listens to a sermon like this, it will never strike home. Never. Your mercy spared me that. And I didn't deserve to be spared that. Why am I continuing to be licentious and play with my sins when it robs me of assurance and terrorizes my soul that I'm going to hell. I am sick of losing assurance. Most professed believers have never experienced a loss of assurance of salvation because most believers aren't saved. We're in a war with the flesh. How could you never have lost assurance of salvation in your converted life? How's that possible? That's basically saying you've never been defeated by sin. <laughs> you name any believer in the Bible who is never struggling with sin or defeated by it? Well, Paul, no, Romans 7, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. Paul was defeated. Struggle with great depression. That's a defeat. Wow. Do we hear testimonies in our churches of people that are terrorized of hell? I'm living in rebellion. Please pray for me. I can't sleep at night. I'm terrorized by hell. I've lost assurance. Not loss of salvation, loss of assurance. 1 John 5 tells us that assurance is a gift only for the godly, not for the rebellious believer. Hmm. So when you're horrified by hell, you cherish mercy spared from that. When you cherish mercy, you never want to have fear of hell again because of rebellion. So I repent, I repent because I don't want to be terrorized by hell and I'm so grateful for mercy. This is growing under the power of mercy. You understand? Is this simple? Are you confused? This is a tell. When was the last time you were terrorized by hell? Well, when you were living in sin as a believer, you would have been terrorized by hell. Playing with sin. Look at Romans 12. Here it is. This is the command. I urge you, I beg of you, verse 1, Romans 12, 1. 
Brethren, talking to believers, now you are to do this by means of mercy. By the mercies of God. Multiple mercies. And when you are living by the mercies of God, what happens in verse 1? You present your body a living and holy sacrifice. Living under mercy stops licentiousness. If you keep playing with sin without repentance as a true believer, you are devastated into terror that you're going to hell. It's so simple in verse 1. And the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God is one that's living, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and separate, holy. That's acceptable to God. But if I don't do that as a true believer, as I've just alluded to, go to Hebrews chapter 10. This is axiomatic. Axiomatic is a very fancy word that just means this happens every time. Okay? Get a flat tire and you're going to drive a mile to the gas station to get the flat fixed. Axiomatic truth right here. You'll destroy the drum. Never drive on a flat tire. That's axiomatic. You tear up the tire, but you'll destroy your drum. Now you've got to replace the tire and the drum. You get a flat, you stop right there. It's better to get a tow than to drive on a flat tire. That's axiomatic. You got it? There's no exceptions to that rule. This is axiomatic. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. If you go on sinning willfully, this is true believers, because in verse 29, they've been sanctified. If you can show me an unbeliever who's truly sanctified in verse 29, I'll show you that you can get saved apart from Christ. Hebrews 10, 26, and 29. Sinning willfully, that's rebellion. True believer rebellion. What's willful sin? I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyways. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't agree with that. Okay, fine. Rebellion, what happens to you? Verse 27. What do you get? A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. First thing that happens is you now believe you're under judgment as a rebellious believer. You become terrorized. It's holy terror. The Spirit of God pulls back assurance and you're flooded as a true believer through the Spirit of God residing within you. This massive terror that you're actually, you've been fooling yourself and you're going to hell. And the first aspect of heaven that you can't stop shaking over is I'm going to burn. I'm going to burn forever. Or you have a fire. A little different. Than, oh, hey God, I'm sorry about that. I, oops, I, you know, I, I did that wrong thing. I thought that. I'm sorry. Thanks, guy. I know I can do it again because I'm free in Christ. I'm safe. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Go back to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Warning in verse 12. Basically, verse 12 is, take care, brethren, that you're not an unbelieving apostate. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there is not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away, falls away as apostasy. He's acknowledging to us a person can claim to be a brother in Christ and go to hell. Hebrews 4. 16. Marked by an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, then, what happens concerning hell for an evil, unbelieving, apostate hell heart? If you tell an apostate, you're going to hell. Well, the heart of an apostate is evil and it's unbelieving. So the apostate would say, well, I don't believe that, unbelieving, right? 
unbelieving, and evil. I, hell's not that bad. See, you're going to hell. <laughs> I don't believe that. It's hell's not that bad. You really believe hell's not that bad? Yeah, I believe hell's not that bad because you know. I live under grace, and I don't lose any sleep over hell. Jesus saves. I'm saved. We're all saved. No problem. Wow. That's really scary. That's actually chapter 3, verse 12, in case you were wondering where I was at. Sorry. Chapter 3, verse 12. I'm sorry. Time to stop. First degree Alzheimer's has kicked in. So it's chapter 3, verse 12. Got a big four on the page. What was I to do? I just thought it was chapter four. Left is chapter three, right is chapter four. I'm sorry. Now go to chapter four. And look at the last verse of verse four. Talking to true believers, not the apostates of chapter three, verse 12, but chapter four, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near us, true believers, with assurance. You can only draw near to God with assurance if you're godly. To the throne of grace, that's prayer. That's last Sunday night. Your tell is your prayer life in every aspect, corporately, privately. What you're doing with prayer is the telling whether you're a real believer or not. Drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace is praying with confidence, assurance that I'm saved. And what happens to that believer? So that, result clause, chapter 4, verse 16, we may receive, this is a gift, mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. I draw near in grace and mercy. I trust your power to transform me, your mercy to spare me. Grace is power to transform, mercy to spare. I'm spared hell. I draw with confidence and assurance, seeing the evidences of conversion in my life. Not based on the fool who judges themselves or others simply by profession. Go back to verse 14. It is not your confession that proves that you're saved. The end of verse 14, it is your holding on to it. Let us hold fast our confession. To master the confession. To grip it. How do I grip my profession of faith? With good deeds. That is the buttress, the fortress that convinces me that I'm a true believer. What good deeds? Oh my goodness, how much have you received from this pulpit? The true evidences of conversion. Lesson number seven was an entire series in your note sheet. The reception of, of mercy is conditional for the believer who's sanctified, and you need to know the biblical evidences of sanctification. That's how you hold fast with assurance. Saved by faith, assured by righteous transformation. And when you're assured of righteous transformation, you're overwhelmed with the horrors of hell that you've been spared. Every true believer does this. And if you're a true believer and you're in rebellion, as the Bible marks rebellion, And the Spirit of God is faithful in Hebrews 10, as we saw, to terrorize your soul and rob you of assurance. It's very simple. If you have no assurance in the face of rebellion, 
is an evidence of conversion. To have assurance in the face of rebellion means you're going to hell. Can't get any clearer than that. George Swinnick, Puritan, said this, and I close. Consider what a grievous sin it is to not serve God under the enjoyments of mercy. Major evidence of conversion is serving with one's gifts. Puritans know it. We know it today. So the megachurch church attendance thing is out the window. That's not an evidence of conversion. Consider what a grievous sin it is to not serve God under the enjoyments of mercy. So many men, the more merciful God is to them, the more sinful they are against him. You ever done that? I've done it. You got tears, you feel guilt, you ask God's forgiveness. Please, God, help me to do better. Five minutes later, you have the same sinful thought. When that happens to me, I instantly drop in my level of assurance. And this statement comes to my mind. How can I do that again? Because that calls into question whether I was legitimately repenting. To repent of a sin and then do it right away means my repentance was bogus. But I had tears. The tears meant nothing. And then I crash back into the horrors of hell. So God, please have mercy. Fire. Totally alone. Burning. Falling. Is, is that me? I repent, I repent, I repent. And then there's victory. And then the Spirit rewards with confident assurance again. George Swinnick says it is sad to sit a sin under afflictions, but the most evil of sins is to sin against mercy. Doing my sin, hell's no big deal. Doing my sin, hell's no big deal. And it's no big deal if it's just a penny to us. It doesn't terrorize us. He goes on, to abuse a friend upon whom you are dependent and from whom you receive your daily sustenance is far worse than abusing a stranger. You understand what he just said there? To abuse a friend is worse than abusing a stranger. Your Savior has saved us, and we abuse him daily with our sin. How could we ever have assurance under that scenario? When we don't repent, see no victory. Even animals manifest respect to those who feed and tend them. You've heard of the crazy dog line? The dog who bites the hand that feeds him? Rex did that. Rex is gone. Went to dog judgment. Dear friend, I can sin. Bite the hand. His last statement, George Swinnick, is this. No one sins so badly as those who sin against the riches of mercy.
Mercy is supposed to transform us, and it will. The Spirit of God will reward us when we live in mercy. How do we live in mercy? I can't, I can't believe daily that you spared me. Millions around me, and I'm one of the few saved. And I know what hell is, and it frightens me. I thank you. I thank you. I'm spared. I'm spared. I don't want to do this anymore. Empower me because I want to live in confidence and assurance. I hate it when I'm terrorized. What a prayer that would be on Wednesday night, wouldn't it be? I lived in sin this week and God terrorized my soul and I want to publicly say on a Wednesday night, God has done so much for me. I've repented and he's given me victory and he restored my assurance because I'm so afraid of hell. The few that come on Wednesday nights, raise your hand if you're regularly here on Wednesday night. Regularly, not occasionally. Those with raised hands, you ever hear a prayer like that? Yes or no? Dear Father in heaven, I will take my own medicine. Why do I keep sinning these sins over and over again? Why do I play with sin? What is the matter with me? How can I be so cold over the horrors of hell? Like Mary clinging to you, Lord Jesus, at the tomb, I cling to the robes of your mercy. I have nowhere else to go. Have mercy on me. I need the deeds of victory. I need the deeds of true repentance so I can live in the harmony of assurance because hell is so close to me, spared me by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I could so easily be a false believer who ends up there and it scares me so deeply. I've seen terror in animals, dear Lord. I see it in the eyes. Dogs who are terrorized. I've seen it very rarely in the eyes of a rebellious believer. I hardly ever see that terror when I'm preaching to this congregation. Have mercy on our souls, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.